I've got to have some really lovely conversations about this show recently. Some of them off the back of an interview that I did about a month ago now for 3CR's Spoken Word show. I had such a lovely time on that show and I really want to thank Ez, aka Waffle Line Girl, for asking me just really thoughtful questions about this show. We ended up mainly talking about Making Poetry Says and what I'm trying to do here. I'll post a link to the interview, but yeah, I just really want to express my gratitude to Ez for just caring so much about what I'm doing here. Uh, I'm feeling quite reflective at the moment, coming up to 200 episodes. If you are new, welcome and thank you. I have noticed a few people going back to like episode one. Uh, look, hopefully it sounds pretty different now than it did back then. That, that would be my hope. But whether you are new or whether you have been here the whole time, just thank you. I don't say that often enough. The reason for that is that I, I work pretty hard at convincing myself that no one is listening when I'm doing my recording because I don't want to feel self-conscious. If I thought about the people who I know to be listening, I would just freeze up completely. But I know you're out there and I really am just so grateful for having such attentive listeners. Case in point... I got an email pretty quickly after the last episode came out, the episode about Fury, from a listener who pointed me towards a poem that I really should have thought of. Of course, of course, I should have mentioned Gig Ryan's If I Had a Gun. I mean, the poem begins, If I had a gun, I'd shoot the man who pulled up slowly in his hot car this morning. I'd shoot the man who whistled from his balcony. I'd shoot the man with things dangling over his creepy chest in the park when I was contemplating the universe. It's pretty much exactly what I was trying to say. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't think of it. I, yeah, but again, I'm just so grateful that I have people out there who can very, very gently um, and with a great deal of tact kind of say, hey, did you think about this? And that listener also sent me a really interesting article comparing Gig's work with Judith Wright's poetry. This article from Overland back in, gosh, when was this written? 2004. It's called Attacks That Sting, the Angry Poetry of Judith Wright and Gig Ryan. It's by Georgie Arnott and she says, this is perhaps the most overtly angry of Ryan's poems, but it is also possibly the most logical and explanatory. And she also describes it as focused anger. Given the, the nature of that poem, it's a, it's a long list poem about men that the speaker would kill if she had a gun. And the fact that, you know, over, over a page and a half, somewhere in the order of, of 20 men are killed for various things. Uh, I'd shoot the man who couldn't live without me. I'd shoot the man who thinks he can look like an excavation site, but you can't, who thinks what you look like's for him to appraise, to sit back, to talk his intelligent way. And then again, towards the end, I'd shoot the man who pulled up at the lights, who rolled his face articulate as an asylum and revved the engine, who says, you're paranoid. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say that this is a furious poem and Gig Ryan would be an example of a poet who is actually able to channel that fury 
into a poem that, as the article says, you know, has been anthologized many, many times. It might be her best known poem. I don't know how she feels about that, given that it is, it is quite different to a lot of her other work. But regardless, it has resonance. And I should have thought of it. I was talking to Lou because I was in Sydney just for about 48 hours last week, uh, which is how I got this interview that I'm about to share with you today. But while I was with Lou, she said, you could also point to Sylvia Plath's Daddy as a furious poem. And Lou also suggested I check out Faye Zwicky, who came up when I spoke to James the other week as well. And so I managed to find her collection from, when is this from? 1990, out from UQP. It's a collection called Ask Me. So I'm going to have a look at this and see what I can find. Apparently, uh, according to Lou, Faye is regularly furious. So I'm looking forward to that. But today, as I said, I got up to Sydney and I got to sit down with Felicity Plunkett. Felicity is a critic, an editor and a poet herself. And when I sat down with her, I, I think I knew in the back of my mind that she had been the poetry editor at University of Queensland Press for a number of years, but I don't think the full gravity of that sunk in until I was in the middle of the conversation. What this means is that she has edited a large chunk of the Australian poetry that is sitting on my shelf. University of Queensland Press has been around for a good long time and I'm trying to think of an equivalent to UQP overseas. I suppose if we have a big four or a big five, they would, I think it's pretty safe to say they'd be the biggest. And as I said to Felicity afterwards, as I was having this realisation in the middle of our conversation, I think I did turn into a bit of a sweaty mess. Uh, but Felicity handled that with a huge amount of grace and we still had a great conversation about her role as a reviewer, the actual editorial process, what goes into it, and a lot of that linked back to the conversation I had the other week with James Jang. We also talk quite a bit about this idea of gatekeeping, who that word gets applied to, what it means, and whether that word can be applied here or not, you know, the, the actual work that's being done by people in roles like this and back to the money question, how much people are actually getting paid for the hours they put in. After all that, we finally get to talk about Felicity's own work, which I'm really, really glad to be able to put a bit of a, bit of a spotlight on, particularly her essay that came out in the Sydney Review of Books um, earlier this year called Plath Traps, which is a very long but very illuminating review of the recent Sylvia Plath biography, Red Comet, but also, you know, basically the, the industry of Plath biographies and the industry of making Plath into a figure that doesn't really reflect who she was. So there's a huge amount in here. The show notes are completely out of control, but I am so excited to be able to share an interview with Felicity Plunkett I really hope that whether you are a new poet or if you've been doing this for a while, you get a lot out of this one. Thank you again for being here and for listening.
thought since you mentioned it by email that it might be nice to kind of link this to that conversation with James to start yeah. with. Yeah. Because you write a whole bunch of reviews. You're a reviewer as well as, and a critic as well as a poet. Mm. And you write reviews for Sydney Review of Books, Australian Book Review, National Newspapers. So the obvious question to start with, I think, would be the same thing I asked James. What do you see the role of the reviewer to be? What do you think of as your job when you're writing yeah. a review like that? Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a great question. And I think it might be something that's quite misunderstood. So I don't see myself as part of the kind of marketing system. So often when you get a book, you'll get a press release and reviewers don't have a lot of time. So you will often see phrases from the press release kind of making their way into reviews and commentary and so on. Um, I see kind of an ideal review process as sitting with the book and being quite attentive to what that writer is trying to do and then trying to uh, find a way to articulate that. So less a kind of a ranking system or a Mm. do buy or don't buy and more some kind of um, discussion that gets into the grain of the book and really tries to come up with a language of of attentiveness, I guess. Um, So that requires, it requires time, um, so there's all the economics of that. Um, It also requires space, so having space um, to do a a longer review, such as obviously Sydney Review of Books, makes it a lot more possible to think through different ideas and not to have to kind of perform some kind of certainty about any of them, but just to kind of explore them in that kind of way. Yeah, that makes sense to me because occasionally when I read reviews of yours, I I feel sometimes I end and think, but did Felicity like it or not? I don't know. (laughs) But it seems like you actually see that job as it's, it's not a question of whether you personally like that book. Yeah, I think there can be a language of sort of puffery that comes into the whole thing at the moment, Um, sort of a, a language of marketing. And I know that, you know, if you, it, certain phrases can then be taken out and, you know, used in various contexts as kind of summary. So you might have written a, you know, 2,000 word review and there'll be a three word quote mm. just where you've, of something that you said. And it's just a real emphasis on evaluation, um, which I, so I think that the kind of comparative um, sort of idea, the idea that there is a discernible hierarchy and some works are really great and some works are really bad, is, it's just not nuanced enough to capture the different ways in which a work might be adventurous or expanding the conversation or the possibilities of form. So, yeah, so I really like to get into the grain and think about what's going on with form, what's going on with language, what's the poet attempting. And I guess the other thing is that being a writer myself, I kind of know that in most cases there's just been so much work and thought and time and care put into that book. And realistically, as a reviewer, the amount of time and care that I put into it is is nowhere near commensurate with that. So it's trying to find a kind of a respectful amount of time and attention um, and recognising that with the books that I've read and reread over years, I'm still discovering new things about them. So what I can do in a, with a review is, you know, it's, it's part of the conversation, but it's not the full conversation. You talked about the puffery 
which is also something that James was gesturing towards. Yeah. And I was trying to make the argument a couple of months ago that we're, we seem to be reaching this moment of, like poetry has this glamour around it at the moment. And I wonder what you think about that idea because you've been writing and working in poetry for a number of years. And do you feel that sense of change? Like this vol- mm. volume increase? Mm. Um, it's, it's good to see that poetry seems to be part of some broader conversations and that's something that hasn't always been the case. So with things like programming festivals, you know, there, it was quite a common model that you would have everything else going on in the festival and then you would just have this little sort of poetry corner. Um, yeah, poetry corner. And I can remember being at, a, at an event in Brisbane, at Brisbane Writers' Festival some years ago, and it was you know, a really good, well-programmed event. But I can't remember what we were... We were um, scheduled against something else. And so there were kind of six, I think, you know, there were really interesting poets on the stage and virtually no one in the audience... Um, and that, that comes from a kind of a sense that poetry is somehow mysterious and inaccessible and, and so on. Um, I mean, the whole question of the fear of poetry is another thing. Mm. But I think we are seeing poets programmed, you know, in discussion with other people who are experimenting with form in other forms or poets who are working across forms. And that's good. The glamour thing... Um, you know, I think it's a double-edged sword. Is it there, though, or am I just making that up? No, I think it's there, and I think, um, I mean, it's, I guess that with the, the, it's, there's a kind of zeitgeist thing, and I think that what I've observed, and this is, it's good to have a bit of distance, I suppose, with this, um, but I've discussed this with David Malouf, who has even more distance. Mm. Things come and go, and fashion, you know, it, fashion in literature, I think, is like fashion everywhere else. Um, so, you know, um, it might be the sort of wide leg, you know, jeans of this season, but next year we'll be back to skinny jeans again. And if you wear your wide leg jeans, then you're going to be terribly out of step. Um, and I don't really think that's how poetry works or how poets work. Mm. Um, and I've heard people like Alice Oswald talk about this really wonderfully and, and she talks about, you know, being packaged poets, this sort of feeling that poets need somehow to be packaged. Um, so she might be packaged as a nature poet. Alice uh, Oswald? Yeah. But her practice, even though obviously it involves the rhythms and the sonics of the natural world and so on, is she, she, wouldn't, she wouldn't describe it in a word and doesn't want to be limited. I mean, no one wants to be limited by a single word, I think. Have people tried to package you? Um, <laughs> I don't know that I don't know that I've had that honour actually. <laughs> Maybe they have, and I don't know. Um, I mean, the question of what what people might be thinking about your work is is a whole other question too. And I think that's one that can sometimes get into your head more than you need to. I'm thinking too not only about your role as a reviewer, but also your role as an editor, because I know that that you've worked with many poets in that capacity. And I've been wondering what you find yourself encouraging poets to do most often. Yeah, that's, uh, thanks, thanks for asking that question. So my, um, the sort of trajectory that I've been on, um, and this is one of the reasons why I really loved your conversation with James Jang, um, is it started in academia. So I did a PhD in literature and then worked in academia for about 15 years. And during that time, I 
um, <clears throat> ended up doing a lot of PhD supervisions and honours supervisions. So, um, and then I ended up um, working to teach other academics how to, you know, some of what I some of what I was rapidly trying to learn about being a supervisor, being an interlocutor, being in a supportive and you know, having, offering kind of robust criticism and offering suggestions, but also recognising that the other person's project was their project. And so again, part of my role was about the kind of attentiveness that I could offer. So um, all of that practice in academia um, then led me into um, my role at UQP as poetry editor, which, was a, which I had for about 10 years. And I found that there was a quite good translation of the things that I'd learnt as a, as a supervisor into my work as an editor. But I've kind of, even though I'm still doing some edits, I'm working for a number of different um, publishers, mostly with people that I worked with at UQP who've gone on to another publisher. Mm -hmm. And I've just gone with them, um, which is really lovely. So there are quite a few people where I've, had, where I've worked now with on more than one book. And that's nice because there's a kind of practice, individual practice that can grow up between poet and editor. The first book that I edited was Nathan Shepherdson's Apples with Human Skin. That was in um, 2009. And um, I was a big admirer of Nathan's first book, which had won the Thomas Shapcott Prize, Sweeping the Light Back into the Mirror. So I was somewhat intimidated to be working on this with this genius poet. Um, but because we were both living in Brisbane, we, 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 you know, we did some to and fro um, with notes and so on. And then we actually sat down with the manuscript on the table. We had a day, we spent a day together, we went for walks, um, we had lunch, we had, you know, went and talked about things like, you know, was the apple in the Garden of Eden an apple or a persimmon and, and what would that mean? And we looked at various you know, artworks and so on. And that was the beginning of a really fantastic, really beautiful um, poetic friendship, which, is, which has been a very ongoing thing. Mm. Um, so that gave me, that set the bar pretty high yeah. in terms of how that conversation might happen. Because often I've edited someone's book and we never, we've never sat down face to face. But with quite a few people, um, we have. Another example would be Omar Saker's um, book, um, The Lost Arabs, and um, Omar was just living in the next suburb, so after a certain point in the editing, we just wanted to look at the order of the book. So we sat here in this room at my um, kitchen table, and just sort of to be able to move from page to page and move the book, move the pages around and think about how the pages, how the poems sat with one another and what possible conversations there were, though they're sort of the, the literalisation of it, the, the physicalisation of it is, can be really powerful. Mm. But equally, um, I've had the most fantastic exchanges with people I've never met. See, now I'm thinking about what I said to James about how some poetry books get into the world with no editorial process and yeah. just feeling a deep yeah. like, shame about saying <laughs> uh, that. No, no. Um, I, I, I can think I was I was on a walk listening to that podcast and I could tell you exactly where I was when you said that because I thought oh yes you know in fact I was joining in that conversation <laughs> quite a bit um, I think that's true and I think it's part of the commodification of poetries and it's also part of you know one way of thinking about poetry if you don't read it and you don't know much about it and if you feel nervous about it is to think of it in terms of themes Poetry um, about motherhood. This poetry is a about, book about yeah. Yeah, a, mm. an experience, right, um, right. whatever that is. 
Um, and that is often part of the book. I'm the, one of the book, I'm just looking, I'm going to take all my cues from what I see on my bookshelf. Yeah, so, Felicity has um, just, <laughs> I mean, it's very distracting, this bookshelf. I'm not facing it, thank God. It's very beautiful. I often teach, teach my Zoom um, masterclasses and so on with my back to that. So I will distractingly at a certain point turn around and start shuffling in the bookshelf for a particular <laughs> book. Um, the book that I was looking at is Ray White's new book. And I would say that it is broadly true to say that Ray's book is about or has a lot to do with trans experience. Mm -hmm. However, it would be to really limit what's going on in that book to think about it only as a book about a particular subject matter because um, it's formally incredibly inventive. So, and that makes complete sense because the idea of genre and gender and subjectivity and so on are kind of all up for questions so it's it's sort of seems to me to be important that the poems constantly ask questions are constantly opening up to new possibilities or reinventing forms or subverting forms um, so there's this constant like querying and querying that's going on at the level of form um, so subject matter is part of it but it's not the only part of it um, and I think so then that's the, the, you know there's that kind of marketing along a particular line and sometimes poets I think can then feel trapped into that I can imagine yeah easily um, but in terms of editing I th I would say editing poetry is like so many things in poetry it's a skill um, it feels to me like a professional skill that I've developed over my whole career you know over decades and I'm learning about it continually and there can be a devaluation of that that can I think that can manifest in just thinking that you just all you need to do is do a kind of spell check and that's all that's necessary mm. but um, as we know as poets to have another poet look at your poem and bring their poetic intelligence to it can really open up the possibilities for that poem or for that sequence or for that book. And so I think it's really important that there are poetry editors and that we value that. How we value it in publishing is a whole other question. Mm. Well, um, I mean, as you're talking, I'm just coming to like fully understand the amount of work that you are doing and how devoted you must be. <laughs> And, mm. and then that's, that brings me around to what we, we talked a little bit about before. The more negative read on the work of someone like yourself is, this is someone between me and publication, this is a gatekeeper. And I, I'm going to bring that word in because I know it was something that we, we did want to sort of unpick. My question, I guess, to start is, do you think there are fewer gatekeepers now than there were like is anything changing around that or do you even agree with the the word as like a, yeah, a premise yeah there's a lot to unpack in that um so the first thing that i'd say is that i think creativity and the creative process and all of the mystery and the wonder and the hard work and grit and sweat of that um, it's not really sort of, it doesn't really sit well with that. Um, it's still, gatekeeping to me still feels like a sort of a marketing language. 
Um, it also feels to me like a quite sad and depleted kind of idea that if someone imagines, if someone imagines that what they're putting out into the world, they're imagining. It's a, I think it's a bit of a paranoid imagining that there is someone out there um, who is sort of standing at some imaginary gate and with a big stick trying to beat you back and stop you from doing what you're doing. And I can't, I don't really know, I think I just feel like it's a kind of a strange distortion when I think about the lives and the work of people who are given that title, including myself, um, and the economics of that and the question of time. So if I sometimes, in terms of the edits that I've done, if I you know, really, if I divided it up and put a rate per hour on it, that <laughs> would be... But which you would never do. Uh, yeah, well, it would be a really embarrassing equation. Yeah. Um, and I know, I remember it's a kind of standout moment in your wonderful conversation with Kent McCarter, who's one of the great bright lights in the poetry world, who said something along the lines of having worked, I think it was for 17 years in this role and not earned a cent. Um, and Kent, you know, has has that brilliant um, poetic. Is you know, he's, he is a poet, and he is also a very experienced editor. So the books that come out with Cordite, he works on them and does that kind of, you know, has that kind of conversation with people. And it's invisible; um, it can be completely elided. Um, not always. I mean, I've worked with some. I've worked with just like so many just generous, beautiful poets who like to talk about and think about that process of working with someone else and and how that can really can really enhance your practice. Mm, mm. Um, but because it's invisible, because it's unpaid, and because poetry still has there's still some really ridiculous ideas around it and fear, fear of poetry, I think that means that there's not a lot of discussion about um, money. The other thing that I, I recently um, tweeted about just in that sort of abstract moment was I was, I was looking at the ASA rates and a, a couple of years ago the, the, the rate that the ASA suggested for poetry was this very strange $127.50. <laughs> okay. And so I just thought, I wonder if that's changed because I was looking at some other rates for you know speaking fees and so on. And suddenly it had changed and it's now something like $50 to $80. And so okay. I thought, what's happened? in the last few years to poetry, at the same time that there is a perception that po there, are, there are lots of signs of poetry. Obviously, for example, the Stella um, shortlist and, and um, Evelyn's winning the Stella is a, is a really good example of that, um, of poetry finding itself and appearing in places where it hasn't appeared before. Mm. And yet that rate, and I, I was joking with um, Stuart Barnes, my close friend the other day, and we were talking about particular poems that we've been um, sharing with one another over some years and working on and sending to places and then looking at them again. And we said, if we actually, again, that same thing, question, if we had to look at a rate, you know, how many hours have gone into this poem? And then when you get $50 and, mm. you know, that equation is, again, it's absurd. Um, so that I've just, I've kind of railed against marketing and money, but, uh, you know, those, if something is undervalued and invisible and I think that there's probably some gendering involved in this because traditionally the work of editing has been, I mean, even the metaphor, Beatrice Davis's wonderful metaphor for editing as invisible mending. You know, it's a slightly, it's a beautiful metaphor and it's one that I've, I, I think is, I 
would feel proud. I have I feel proud when people use that in relation to my work because I do I don't think it's it shouldn't be about my ego. It should be about my doing something that ne isn't necessarily even mentioned. The, some poets will choose not to even mention it, and that's that's their right too. Mm. Um, but the idea of somebody kind of running around, you know, and, and, and invisibly mending the hem of, you know, someone who's much more important is just a slightly strange and gendered metaphor that I think is a bit telling and it relates to that. Um, not that we have that many sort of prince and princesses of poetry running around in that role, if only, po if only poets were. But <laughs> It could happen. Um, it just yeah. seems to be a slightly twee metaphor for the really quite gritty and, and passionate and intense um, discussion that goes on. Yeah. As you're talking to, I always when I make this show in the back of my mind is the the voice of the person who feels completely on the outside, which is at once everybody. And and then I also think about basically myself back in Canberra. If I were listening to the show now, I would be like, yeah, but you know, Felicity lives in Sydney and like she knows all these people. And um, it's never going to happen for me, is what I kind of would have thought. Yeah. And, and I wonder, like, if you had any sort of thought or comment on newer poets, people who are both people who are just starting out and then maybe even more people who have been at it for a long time and it is just not working. Um, yes. Oh, so I'm glad you, you took me back to that. Going back to the question of gate, gate keepers. And I just I see that word used in a hostile way. And... When I think of the, you know, going back to when I think of the people who were doing that work, like Kent, you know, who, if you email Kent, you know, you get a reply in 10 minutes, you know, and if you send an invoice to Cordite, it'll be paid instantly by Kent, you know. Um, and then Jessica Wilkinson would be another example who comes to mind. Um, there, there are numerous examples, all the people who do the editing of particular issues of journals, um, you know. Um, yeah. So I hardly think of those people who are just really, um, there's their own practice, which needs a certain amount of time. There's whatever they're doing to earn a living. And as I say, that's generally, that generally can't be the editing work. And then there's this, this other thing that these people do, and, and I would consider myself as part of that. And there has to be time for that. So there's all of that. So I, I feel a sense of frustration um, when people say that. And at a conference... Um, a few years ago at Poetry on the Move, someone brought this up um, and sort of said to me, and that's, again, that slightly hostile way, well, you're a gatekeeper. And I, I thought, okay, so certainly the role that I had at UQP meant that I was inundated with manuscripts and we could accept, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe five or six a year. Which is still quite a big list. for It is. Um, like in the... In relative terms, like it is, yeah. and um, and they would often be there. So there was always a Thomas winner of the Arts Queensland Thomas Shapcott Prize. So that was a debut collection. There were occasionally other debut collections, um, such as Ellen Van Nieven's first collection, Comfort Food. Mm. Um, and then there was often something in the collected. Um, so you know, Rosemary Dobson collected, for example, which there wasn't. There was nothing, no electronic copies. So people had to, not myself, but people typed up you know, poems and put together this collection and so on. So, you know, there's a lot of different things going on. A lot of labour and care goes into that. Um, but at that conference, I said, I think that we need to think of it more as, uh, this metaphor isn't ideal, but gate makers. You know, there, there are some barriers, but the barriers are not brought 
they're not made by poets, the poets who are doing the work of editing journals and editing other people's work and applying for funding for particular issues of journals and curating um, <clears throat> you know, groups of poets to speak in various places. Toby Fitch would be another example who, you know, for years has curated the fantastic Sappho readings and it's different poets all the time. Um, Toby makes a real effort to really reach out and find new poets, so we've often had conversations about that. And um, I don't really see, I see all of those people as doing something very creative and trying to create opportunities and trying to plant seeds of possibility. So I think it's a better idea for new poets who might feel um, sort of on the outside of that to think, okay, um, so I'm really passionate about this particular type of poetry, let's say, the sonnet off the top of my head. And I don't see any issues about sonnets and I feel like their gatekeepers really hate sonnets. Well, you know, that's the kind of thing where, um, you know, that maybe a polite email to somebody like Jess Wilkinson say, hey, you know, is it possible that Rabbit might like to do a sonnet issue? Or, you know, um, going to um, Sappho and getting up an open mic and reading a sonnet and then perhaps if that goes down well having a conversation about maybe we could have a sonnet night at Sappho. So I think it go, it's instead of sort of having the, the idea that you're quite passive and you're a consumer, it's I think empowering to think we are all part of this culture and you know those journal ideas, those journal themes, um, all of the different places that poetry pops up um, festivals and so on, they're all really done um, by people who would be doing a lot of work outside what they're paid to do. Really, and really, you know, um, again, I'm, another person who springs to mind is Shane Strange, and I've been to Poetry on the Move, um, curated by Shane, but also just recently Queensland Poetry Festival. And um, just the amount of to and fro and care and thinking about who else has books out and how could they be represented and how could we bring this theme in? This is something that hasn't happened before. What could we make happen around this? Mm. So I think if we think of a culture where we, we're trying to make, we are trying to make gateways and trying to make opportunities, but we're crafting them ourselves. Um, so yeah. I've, and I think everybody has the feeling of on some level being outside. I think poetry... Even you? Of course. Of really? Course. <laughs> I mean, I've got the same as everybody else, you know, sending poems out, getting them declined. And, um, and also I think because of the nature of the role at UQP and having to have to say no to a lot of people, that those people can be very disappointed and their disappointment sometimes comes to... Be, you, you come to personify their disappointment and they have a perception that individual editors or anthologists or whoever, you know, are personally, you know, against them. Whereas all of us are really frustrated by the diminution of resources to poetry. So, you know, there's so many really good poetry magazines and journals that have gone under. Um, it's wonderful to see some coming back, like Heat coming back. Yeah, that blew my mind. So exciting. What, ha what happened there? Yeah, well, it's, it's come back. I mean, I, um, I, I kind of had a connection with Heat from the start in the sense that um, Ivor Rendick was my PhD supervisor. Mm. Um, and Ivor went on leave without pay to start up Heat and Giramondo. And someone, um, Deborah Adelaide, was offered um, Ivor's job 
but she had small children, so I was um, invited to job share. So I'm kind of like right in on the beginning of that and had, and had poems published in Heat at the beginning, which was, a, you know, just felt like huge at the time. Mm. Still feels really great. Um, but those so many journals have just had to go under and the result of that is that maths we were talking about. I'm sound, sounding very mathsy. Um, my no, son no, no, is no. A, my son's studying maths. I think it must be kind of contagious. Um, but you know, when I, I mean, I edited, for example, an, an open issue of Cordite some years ago, and I did I did the maths then, and I think there was sort of some that was an open issue, so lots and lots of poems, thousands, and I think I worked out that it was some like, you know, a percentage of a percentage that you could actually publish, and that definitely doesn't mean that I'm sitting there saying I hate all those other poems they're all really bad and in particular I hate the person who wrote them you're actually constantly thinking you say how can I what where are some other possibilities who can I have a conversation with so that we can expand these possibilities um, and then I think the more all of us in the poetry community um, and I'm, I'm talking to you Alison you're just such you're just the exemplar of this but you know like how can we support all of those initiatives just by, you know, all of the things that we can do, reading one another's work, thinking about it, having conversations. Um, and when there are initiatives, I think it's because they've, 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 things have really diminished over the last decade, and that's to do with, you know, it's to do with funding to the arts generally, but poetry is often at the bottom of that heap mm. you know ballet somehow, somehow is always at the top um ballet and opera yeah that's right <laughs> which is nothing wrong with them but poetry i think is right that's much further down the food chain yeah. and in fact if you have a conversation with people just generally um who are inter inter interested in the arts and i've experimented with this people have said oh i love poetry and i've said okay you know not in a particularly combative way but oh like so well who do you think of when you think of australian poets and there really is mostly a silence Henry Lawson. <laughs> well, um, you know, Clive James is a name that oh, yeah, comes Clive up. Oh, James. And so the mechanics of that is pretty interesting yeah, that's because that's about we exalt people by sending them overseas yeah, and yeah. as long as they never come you back, got, you, you got know, out. then they can stay exalted. You're not actually Australian, so we can like you. So I like to think if, if we could get rid of, I, I've got a kind of a, a quest against some of that other language that is, makes us so abject. Um, Jeff Schotts, who's the poetry editor at Grey Wolf Press, um, wrote this wonderful piece called The Art of Rejection. And I just, I love it so much. Um, but it's about how as an editor, you just feel like you're constantly making yourself unpopular. Mm. It's agonizing to, especially if you're in a situation as I was with UQP, where I might be advocating really strongly for a book, and then it goes off to a committee made up of various people at the university. I'm trying to sort of come up with a language that expresses what this poet is doing, that some professor of physics and someone from, you know, whatever else, other part of the university can kind of really hear and understand. And then, I'll, it, you know, it will come back and, it, no, we're not going to publish that one and so on. And so for that poet, I'm the face of that disappointment. But in fact, I might have put hours and hours and hours into writing the documents to really try and make a case. Mm. Um, and that, again, that's invisible and it's just, it's, it's mystifying. And I think it's really important for poets to know that other poets, the poets who've stepped up into these largely voluntary roles, are doing it because we love poetry and poets and want to support poetry. So it's kind of a question about what we can all do as a group, I think. But talking about, you know, championing work and the love of it and things like that. I think you said to me over email that your 
the most recent collection to kind of see has become a COVID book. And I was wondering if you felt that it's been forgotten a little. Um, oh, uh, well, um, there were more than 10 years between my two books, my first two books. Yeah, I'm really interested um, in that too. And it's a bit of a classic pause that just can be easily be explained by um, really life circumstances and so that you can see it in quite a few other poets. I think Judith Bishop would be another example that springs to mind, but it's quite common. You know, quite a big pause between the first book. I think, in fact, Judith's is almost identical to mine. And it's to do with having children, but I also, um, I, I, just around about the time that I um, published Vanishing Point, it, which was uh, 2009, um, just, just a bit before that I'd become a single mother so I had two-year-old and a five-year-old and I'd resigned from my tenured academic position and then I found myself on my own so I really had to build a career from the ground up um, as a freelance writer and so you know that started out with just having to send lots of emails to people um, and just make sure I had enough income um, whether it be you know marking for academics. Um, I did a lot of, do a lot of marking in schools. Uh, that's where I started to do a lot of reviews. So Gia Metherall, who was the literary editor at the Canberra Times at the time, would pretty much send me a book every week or fortnight. Um, didn't pay much. You would be paid $100 for those reviews. So, you know, like all my work was sort of at that level. You had to put, again, you know, don't, I don't even want to think about the at the, the rate per hour. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to you know, I was um, very focused on my kids and they, I wanted to have, you know, I didn't want their childhood to have gone past and for me to be just completely distracted. <laughs> I mean, maybe they would say that it has, I have been, but I have wanted to try and shape things, you know, around them. And um, so really, um, I mean, I kept publishing poems all during that time, but a lot of my energy... Um, so as I say, you know, I edited Nathan's book in 2009 and that was my first edit. Um, and then I had the poetry editor's role. That's an honorarium role. So it's not like I think people, I think in the past it was, you know, full-time um, salaried role, but it's definitely not that these days. Um, and so, you know, um, f having enough time to put that book together just, just took time. Um, so it was just incredibly, I was, I felt incredibly um, blessed that, and of course I was at UQP mm. and my first book had been with UQP. Um, so it seemed like that was the last place I would publish a book. But in the end, um, I had the manuscript and Aviva Tuffield, who'd taken over the poetry list at UQP, um, asked me whether I'd be happy for it to be sent out to a, for a reader's report and the reader was very positive about it. So. Um, yeah, so after a bit of time, and I, you know, I hadn't been in that role for a while, so it was published. Um, it was published in February 2020. I'd been, I, I wanted to go up to Brisbane because um, I have a very beautiful poetry community in Brisbane, and I, I wanted to um, launch with two of the poets that I'd been working with, um, two of the beautiful um, mentees that I'd been working with, Ellen Van Nieven and Anna Jacobson. So I, that's what I, you know, that was my kind of ideal launch. 
And it was funny because Abbott had said to me, okay, we can do it in February or we can do it in April. And I was really kind of torn between the two because I thought February in, at Abbott, it could be really, really stinking hot. Right. Um, but something just made me go up in February. So I had this absolutely gorgeous launch and people surprised me by coming from all over the place. Um, David Malouf came up from the Gold Coast. Uh, Stuart Barnes came down from Rockhampton, etc. It was just really beautiful. And then, of course, several weeks later, you know, we well, not that maybe a month later, lockdown. Mm. Um, so I had had some invitations for you know things and festivals and so on that just didn't happen. And I do think that was a disadvantage to those of us who had books in that year, um, just because there's something very powerful about being, you know, on a, if you're on a panel, for example, and poets can share some of their work, have a discussion with one another. It's a really good way for um, readers just to think, oh yeah, that sounds really interesting. I really liked that poem, so I'll go and on the back of that, I'll go and buy the book and yeah. explore it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little bit hard to get to that when poetry books generally are not sitting on the shelves and so on. Um, Having said that, I had some just wonderful um, engaged reviews um, that were just so phenomenally helpful to me. One of them completely out of the blue <clears throat> for me was by Gregory Day. Um, and I just felt so honoured that he had just really sat with the book and there were things that were, you know, there were criticisms that were incredibly helpful to me in terms of my practice so that's okay um just talking about um uh, you know it's a very, it was a very, largely very positive review but just sort of talking about the possibility he was talking about the the poet as singer and the kind of poetry that i'm doing as having an analogy with singing and talking about sometimes going sometimes you can go too far with that you know like any singer i think something like like any singer you can go too far and i thought i think that's really interesting for me because those questions about you know how what that might mean and how he I think I've kind of made that sound um, less helpful than it actually was but it as soon as I read it it resonated with me he suggested a few other books that that were analogous some of which I knew some of which I didn't um, and so I just felt like it was such a gift that I felt as though really that was kind of, that's kind of the ideal for me someone who's really sat down with your work mm. and it's not a puff piece but they have said some very nice things about what they think works. And then they've read it in a way that you feel like, yes, they've, they've kind of got what this, the vision of this book was, which mm. is especially good if it's not, if you're not really, this book's not really sort of working in the same ways that it's not a zeitgeist kind of book. Yeah. Uh, I think it'd be good to hear one, hear a poem. <laughs> um, if there's one you have in mind to read, then that would be great. But I also thought that the opening poem is Soundbridge is just a really excellent place to, to start. Okay, um, just having a look through it to see whether I can I can do it. <laughs> I mean, there's a few, yeah. Maybe how would what about if I read Strand because I know oh, I was I've read that say one. That one too. Okay, yeah. I might do that one because I know that one quite well. Great, great. <laughs> I read I'm reading Soundbridge like oh who wrote this? <laughs> what were, whatever were they thinking? That's great. <laughs> Um, okay, Strand. Every poem has a secret addressee, every secret, a shoreline, mine loosens like a tooth. I wake to three knocks, three times no one there, knocks echo through an empty house, 
until I am empty of dreams. An owl at noon means death, your death eyeing me still from a tree one leafless noon. See yourself in a dream, you are soon to die. Seeing you without me in a dream, I knew you could survive. Tumble of wings into pain, a wrecked bird huddled on the ledge, looking in, your eyes closed against pain. Nothing to say, as when words lose their letters in winter, letters spines dismantle in my silent hand. I hear your name in a dream of sea, dream my secrets fall from my mouth, braced neat as pearls. Broken mirror, spilt salt, opened umbrella, salt rain broke and I thought no harm could come to you. Never rock an empty chair, your empty room, fulcrum of consolation and despair. A sailor with an earring cannot drown, Drownless in the hold of your sea cradle, distant as shoreline. Thank you. Yeah, I, I pulled that one out to ask about because I feel as if the first, that first phrase, every poem has a secret ad addressee, is, it, it sums up a lot of the book for me. I feel like there is, you're working through a conversation that is maybe largely one-sided in a lot of these poems, <laughs> um, particularly the first, um, the first long poem, which is in 10 parts, called Glass Letters. And, you know, we, we sort of touched on form a little bit so far. And the other thing I thought about rereading this in preparation to chat to you today was both the compression and the really heavy enjambment as well. And you don't mention her anywhere, but the poet I kept thinking about was Anne Carson. Hmm. Is she important mm. to you at all? Yeah, I love Anne Carson. Yeah. I just I just pulled one of her books off the shelf today. It's sitting down there on the floor, The Beauty of the Husband. Um, oh, yeah, Beauty of the Husband. Um, yeah. And Knox, I particularly like. Um, but, of course, she's written on Paul Salan as well. So, I, yeah, no, right. I, I think she's great. And, of course, The Glass um, the glass Essay. Is that the yeah, title? The Glass yeah, Essay. It's kind of yeah. in there. The note about the taking singing too far surprises me because... I said this to Tracy Ryan as well. I think this is true of this collection in a different way. The control here is just phenomenal. And and it's it's compressed. Like lately I've felt myself kind of rebelling against compression, but it's not too much. There's um, an epigraph to one of the poems called Bridge Physics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And the epigraph is from mm. techengineering.org. Two major forces act on a bridge at any given time, compression and tension. Compression or compressive force is a force that acts to compress or shorten the thing it is acting on. Tension or tensile force is a force that acts to expand or lengthen the thing it is acting on. And I read that and I thought, yeah, that's, that's what she's doing. Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> funny, um, <laughs> funny epigraph, I know. Um, so I wrote that poem for um, an issue of Rabbit, actually, um, oh. edited by um, David Stavanger and Pascal Burton, I think. Oh, that Pascal was, was the other editor. Issue, wasn't it? No? I think it was called Tense or Tense. 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 Yeah, Tense. That's and right. yeah. I thought, oh, that kind of um, resonates with me because I think that there is always this thing about, you know, the freedom and the flow, and um, but also 
te- you know, tension, a compression is really, it feels to me to be really important. Mm. Um, so yeah, it is a, it's a bit of a, more of a statement of poetics than I realise. Thanks for, thanks for pointing that out. Um, so I definitely think there's a kind of an engineering that goes on. Um, I, I think I've probably really mis- badly mi- misrepresented um, Greg's comment. Um, but <laughs> it was about, okay. um, I mean, I think, and I remember this, the first poems that I ever sent out, which I sent to um, Southerly under a pseudonym and I got a note because, and the reason for that was because my then PhD supervisor Ivor Indic um, was, was working, was doing that work then and I felt, oh, you know, I just didn't know how to navigate the fact that I was his PhD student but I wanted to send poems there so I made up, a, I, I think that now I think what I thought was incredibly ethical was probably quite not as ethical as I thought but I just didn't know how to navigate it so he wrote back this polite very polite I'm sure I've got it somewhere this really beautiful in this beautiful handwriting and this acute and perfect comment which was some, sometimes something along the lines of sometimes you lay it on a bit too thick and it was perfect and helpful and I think as poets it's really good to be able to get to the point where you can accept that as as intended which is as a gift um, it's easy to hear any criticism as Oh, they don't, they don't like it. But, you know, it's pretty easy for me to see sometimes when I'm working with someone else what, what the habits that a poet might have. Mm. It's, I think, harder for us to see what our own habits are. Definitely. And um, sometimes our habits are great. You know, sometimes that's the sort of hallmark of what we do so amazingly. You know, Emily Dickinson comes to mind. Um, there's these things that Emily Dickinson does that no one else does. And, you know, that's, you wouldn't want it to be otherwise. Mm. But I think there's a, a degree of consciousness around our habits is really helpful to thinking just having consciousness about what we're doing and more bringing intention to what we're doing with form and how form is working you know in relation to meaning um although I immediately think of this great line by Kazim Ali in a book on line breaks and um, enjambment which he mentioned and he says something like you know we have to think about the relationship between form and meaning except the problem is we don't know what meaning means <laughs> And, you know, they're, so they're not, it's not like there's, there are distinct categories, but I think, you know, more attention to form is, is often really, can be really productive and fruitful for poets. Mm, mm. I was going to ask you about that as well, because you wrote a review of Stallings, Ada Lemon and Jean Shea. And in that you, you said about form, um, and we're using that term like really loosely. I know it's, yeah. not, it's not particularly satisfying yeah. for anyone. Yeah. Um, you said, in the context of poets, debates, form can figure as a room you enter or don't, usually a very small room, if not the smallest, imagined as staid and stultifying or worse, suffocating. But obviously your, your relationship to that, I'm thinking too about like the control that, mm. you, that you have. Mm. It's like you don't see it that way at all. No, I mean, I think, um, uh, so Mary Oliver in that, you know, um, in her introductory book, which I'm sort of looking for and can't quite see there, um, I think it's just called a poet's handbook, poetry handbook or something. That's often, mm. people often teach that in, um, you know, first year poetry courses. And it's, it's enduring, you know, I, I, find, I reread it from time to time and find it really helpful. But she says, it's kind of funny that in other, in the other art forms, we think it's, fi- it's quite normal to go to the gallery if you want to be a painter and you know, just do some sketching, copy what other people are doing, kind of learn from others. But there's something in poetry where 
sometimes there's a resistance to that. No, it's weird. It's like, oh no, I, I don't want to corrupt myself. Like, I know I used to think this way. It's like, oh no, I need to stay away from poetry because then I'll start to like, as yeah. if I was going to just be able to sound exactly <laughs> like another poet. Yeah. Like it was going to, I was going to catch something. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very weird. funny idea. Um, yeah. And I think it's to do with, I think a recognition that there is a very intuitive you know, receptive part of us that's working when we're writing poetry. And that, that's really important, the kind of the much more mysterious, intuitive, you know, it can almost feel like you're given things to put into poems. And that's, that's beautiful and you really wouldn't want to mess with that. But on the other hand, um, it feels to me, you know, to use a diff, to just shift to a different analogy altogether just because the piano is sitting here. Um, you know, if you don't know how to play the piano, you could just walk up to the piano and you could press the keys and you can make a sound. And that's fine and great, but there will be other people who want to, you know, want to learn to read music or want to learn how to play pieces that other people have written, mm. you know, and that's a different enterprise. Mm. And I think the reading and writing of poetry, and I think it can feel a bit terrifying because it can feel, well, how do I, I mean, I didn't actually do, I've never done any creative writing training at university or anything like that. In fact, when I wrote my first book, I hadn't really had conversations or workshops or to and fro with other poets at all it was very much something I'd just done on my own pretty much and but I had done literature degree so that's so I'd done all of I'd done a lot of reading um, and I think in a way this brings us back to what James was talking about about you know reading is available it's there's there's no real you know well there are gatekeepers there are there are limitations on who can read um, but in we, we are pretty lucky in Australia that most people, we have public libraries, which I think are just the best and most wonderful thing. It's possible to get books like Mary Oliver's. It's possible to read, you know, pretty much get your hands on and read anything. And or there are fantastic websites like Poetry Foundation, um, mm. which just, you know, just have, is a great source of poems and poetry and it's searchable so if you're interested in going back to sonnets I'm really obsessed on with sonnets apparently <laughs> um, but you know you can type in sonnet and you can see sonnets you know you can go back and you can read Thomas Wyatt's sonnets which I really love I did those at uni um, you know you can look at Shakespeare's sonnets you can look at commentary on the sonnet and you can look at you know something like um, the wonderful Geordie Alberston's books of sonnets you know entire books like the sonnet according to M beautiful mm. book mm. Um, um, or 15ers, which is, they're not sonnets, obviously, but they're kind of like, you, they're informed by the sonnet and they're informed by Emily Dickinson's patterns and rhythms. And, and then Geordie um, made them her own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to finish without asking you about this essay, Plath Traps, which feels as if it could slash should be a book of some description, like just as it is. It doesn't, by that I don't mean... It feels like the start of a book. It feels like it is a complete work. And I just can't imagine how many hours you must have spent on that thing. <laughs> I mean, I know that you did a PhD on Plath and you know, you've know you travelled yeah. to America, you've looked at the archives, you've been yeah. to the house, yeah. uh, yes. you've been into the attic because yeah. somebody nearby thought that you were Plath's daughter. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is it like to have spent that much time with a poet? Yeah, so I'd say there were only you know, one or two poets that I've spent that amount of time with. One would be Plath and the other one would be Paul Salan. Um, and so really, um, I'm, so, I'm so glad you say that about the essay, Plath Traps, because it is, it's not only is it kind of 
several decades thinking about Plath. But I have also, as a reviewer, I've always been given lots of books on Plath. So I've pretty much read, I've, I think I've you know, read most books that have been written on Plath, which is quite a lot. Um, but I, I've mostly spent a lot of time with the, with the poetry. And so, you know, my, my passion has always been for the poetry. And um, so I think in a funny sort of a way that essay is a bit of an oblique self-portrait. Um, it's about the closest that I've got to actually talking about my own practice. And I, um, I was a bit, you know, I was a bit reluctant about doing so, but I had the most wonderful encouragement um, from my editor, Katrina Menzies-Pike, who just, earlier on we were talking about what, I, what might be my next essay, and um, I just mentioned that there was this new Plath biography, and I said, maybe it's time for me to write um, about Plath. And I actually taught Katrina many years ago when I was an academic. Um, and uh, so I think it probably would have been apparent then that I was really passionate about Plath. Um, so Katrina said, oh, I think it'd be really good to do that. And then was just very patient with me because with the pandemic and suddenly having to adjust and find new sources of income and all sorts of things that happened to all of us. Um, you know, I just didn't get to it and I wasn't getting to it with enough headspace. So I was kind of drafting it and then stopping and starting and coming back to it. Um, but finally I was able to really, really put some time into it and and I, it just grew and grew. So I think it might be about 9,000 words. So it's actually, you know, extremely long essay, which kind of goes back to my point about, you know, being able to think about something at length and think through all of the angles. Mm. But I think also to think through that question about how my, my reading of Plath is not going to be identical to anybody else's and these are the kind of lenses that have informed my reading which will be ongoing. Um, but I think the biggest moment for me with Plath was going to the archives and having those experiences that go into that category of the sort of the spectral and the mysterious, the things we really can't yeah. explain. She called you. Yeah, and just feeling that you are, you know, you are having a conversation, you are in conversation with someone when you spend that long reading their work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you, and again, you know, in terms of that, that idea of being attentive, I've, I've always felt that there were misunderstandings about Plath, but then over the years, you know, different things have happened in my life that have given me much more insight. So I didn't really, I think, as a 17-year-old, have much sense of why, you know, how hard it would have been for her in 1962 as a single mother of two very small children until, you know, a generation later, there I was with my two small children and, and a, as a freelance writer, writing exactly the same letters to people about, you know, oh, I'm just I'm so very sorry to bother you, but, you know, the invoice that I sent, so it would be really great if you could pay that invoice. And just sort of recognising that I'd read these letters. I'd read her letters where that was, you know, it was happening for her. And and then recognising her creative productivity under those circumstances and really understanding how extraordinary that was. Yeah, yeah, um, completely. Yeah. And I always kind of felt that it was a bit of a Disney kind of reading of Plath to imagine that she was so heartbroken that Ted Hughes, you know, about Ted Hughes, that that was why she died. And Really, I think the new biography has kind of really clarified a lot of that, especially about um, the, the, the amount of medication that she was on, self-medication, inappropriately diagnosed, you know, um, inappropriate diagnosis, which is again something that I'm quite interested in. 
you know, people like Janet Frame who had hundreds of ECT treatments essentially for, there was nothing wrong with her. She was just the wonderful, a wonderful person that she was. Um, so I think a lot of that applies to Plath and Plath was so independent and she was so, um, and she was a very sexual person herself and had all sorts of, you know, um, various love affairs and so on and um, lots of lots of people around and potential lovers. So the image of her as kind of hankering after him, I mean, I, th I think the rupture in their relationship was very painful for both of them. But I also really always had a bit of a sense that, you know, she, did, she didn't want to sort of be tagging along after someone who didn't want to be with her in the kind of relationship that she wanted. She was pretty clear about she. I, I think it's kind of like even as simple and neutral as he was never again a monogamist. You know, he had this monogamous period when they were together and he wasn't subsequently. And we now have just a different language around that. Some people are, <laughs> you know, some people want a monogamous, you know, very uh, dyadic, you know, kind of creative interchange sort of thing that she wanted. He wanted something different. And I think they both knew that. Mm. And they were pretty friendly towards the end, really positive about each other's work, reading each other's poems, encouraging each other. So I think it's just a misreading that's kind of put her into this really sad old role that really misunderstands just how much drive she had and also just what went wrong, which was, I think, about medical trauma and the terror that she had about, you know, potentially being hospitalised, which, which seems what, you know, was on the cards, um, and being treated by people who didn't know you, who didn't necessarily respect you. And we now have, you know, so much more poetry and so much more work about medical trauma and the trauma that people um, can experience with inappropriate care. And here I think about things like um, <clears throat> Anna Jacobson's work, both in poetry and prose, about, um, n you know, I think negligent and even abusive care that's, that people experience and how that, how, you know, what can be the results of that. Mm. Yeah, just that mix of medication. Um... Yeah, just, just impossible circumstances. Is there, I'm going to ask you to take us out with another poem. Is there, <laughs> is there a poem in Kind of See that, that links to these themes, I wonder? Um, mm. Doesn't have to be. Um, I'm thinking about the poem Three, which I, I love the, I, I really enjoy it mm. and I particularly just love the choice of epigraph. I'm reading Henry, Henry James at the moment. <laughs> well, um, yes, I can certainly read that one. And I think that's one of those ones where um, I'd, I'd always just known that phrase and thought, so, so the epigraph is, three things in human life are important. The first is to be kind, the second is to be kind, and the third is to be kind. Henry James. Um, as I discovered with when I went seeking permission and to pay for permissions and so on for a whole lot of things in this book, some of the things that we think are quotations from people may or may not be, and that's one of the ones that's a bit dubious. And the title as well, <clears throat> I kind of see, is yeah. attributed to Emily Dickinson, but it's actually not her. Yeah, and, and so that sent me into a panic because I'd read it, you know, numerous times I'd come across it as a right. quote. Yeah. And when I went to seek permission for it, I realised that it's not. And um, uh, Ross Gibson, um, the wonderful Sydney poet and academic, was, I knew at the time, uh, reading... Emily Dickinson's letters, you know, really, really meticulously. So I, I asked Ross, you know, I'm, I'm just, I can't find this letter. What, what, you know, where should I be looking? I just, I don't know. And, 
And he basically um, gave me the evidence that there's just no way she could have written that. Um, <clears throat> which sent me into a panic because I thought, oh no, now I don't have a book title, what am I going to do? <laughs> but I actually thought that um, that memification and the idea of something that is attributed to someone and the kind of the, the, the universe of memes and quotes and false attribution and the way someone can say something or not say something, the way we engage with what we read, the way, you know, experience is not just personal. I mean, the, the poem Strand, I, it's, it's, you know, it's obviously informed by my own experiences of grief and loss, but I don't, it's not a specific description of a particular loss. It's, it collects all of those, um, you know, uh, superstitions around death and dying because to me that kind of shows how, you know, hope and fear are these things that, that are these kind of common, they're common experiences. So my hope is that those poems become quite porous so that a range of different people can see themselves in there. Mm. Um, I did have one um, review which spent some time debating that, that I was actually wrong about the fact that that was, that actually, no, Emily Dickinson did say that. And I think, <laughs> oh, even that's kind of perfect. That's great. Um, so um, I'll just, I'll read this one then, three. It is you who smooths the quilt over my sleep shards. You who do not yet live here, but blaze silently. My hand in this injury, if not in its stitching, where do I look, if not always, to escape? Compassion's small font, words folded back or care drafted, needle kind, brine, witness, to both wound and cure. Patiently, sitting on hospice bed edge, you adjust the leaky cannula, tune its little reed. Holding not your all yet, though you rest your head against mine, space. Be patient, trust stirring in the bud. Triage dreams, sirens, emergencies ordered, borders unsealed always alone when pain climbs to 10. The one who lost the most gives away more, a giving like soap to blade, salvaged hope, ocean rope, gauze. When you are in danger, who am I with such small gifts, a poultice of godless prayer, mute infusion, obscure calculus, abacus beads, falling like teeth, and from your own torn mouth, consolation, calm. You know how to hold space, strange physics with me, without need, demand, where morning ebbs, lives next to love. All threads in a weave of kin, all roots that take you down to glass words, sand broken, ground small beyond sound where all tongues lose their language, all hands let go, forget force, put down their cudgels, where all that divides us calculates its losses and I am made to learn grace in the space silence breaks, bruises open dark sails. I want to know one thing, try to hold it, try again, to be kind, to be kind, kind.